Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. The Atlanta Falcons have come to do two things in 2023. Run the ball and absolutely murder your quarterback. And they're probably going to be pretty good at both. <laughs> Kick ass and chew gum and they're all out of gum? Pretty much. Okay, cool. <laughs> Draft Bijan. Sign pass rushers, sign DBs, win games 13 to 12. That's the 2023 Falcons. And this philosophy can work. It's worked in the past. Doesn't work all the time. But hey, what else are they going to do? The NFC South is a winnable division. And this is the only way that they think they can win it. And we're going to explain today why it might actually work. So, Jay... Roll the intro. Uh, Welcome, one and all. Uh, This is Bootleg Football Podcast. If you're not familiar with what we do and who we are, uh, I'm Brett Coleman. That's EJ Snyder. We are uh, primarily... A very nerdy football contest. Yes. Contest. Wow. See, can you tell we're on episode two or three today and I've been <laughs> sitting in the sun too long, <laughs> turning your brain into a raisin, <laughs> drinking a few wonderful drinks today. Uh, podcast, not contest. And, uh, you know, we dive into numbers. We dive into film. We try to explain uh, football in the most detailed uh, researched, uh, semi well-reasoned way that we possibly can. We're not going to get everything right. We are going to make mistakes. It's really hard to cover cover all 32 teams in detail from a national level, but we do our best, folks. So uh, if you point out something glaringly wrong, we don't take offense to it. We learn from it and we do our best. But uh, we have done a lot of research for this episode to try to explain everything that went wrong for the Falcons in 2022 and why those things might be corrected in 2023. But before we get to that, EJ, how are you doing? Good. I'm toasty today. We have actual LA weather. It's 76 degrees outside, sunny blue skies, what you picture for a prime Southern California day. And uh, sitting in here, middle of the afternoon, ready to talk about NFC South football. This is our maiden voyage this year into the NFC South. A very grimy division. <laughs> we were, uh, <laughs> when we were looking at all the teams from last year, I think, what was it? Three of them finished seven and 10 with the exact same record. And the winner was eight and nine. So they were which, all right next to each other, which is one of the weirdest finishes in NFL history, right? Four teams separated by one game, three teams with the exact same record. I don't know that I've ever seen that before. And especially with all of them being under 500, 
you know, it was definitely a, oh, God, which which one of these teams are we going to sacrifice to the Eagles in the playoffs or, you know, whoever they play? Who did the Bucks play against? I can't even remember. I, remember. I knew nobody gave them a shot and they were correct. But yeah, it was just it was a not great year for the NFC South. And for the most part, all of them got better in the offseason. Again, I still don't think we're going to get a Super Bowl winner out of this division this year. But at least the football that we see from this division this year should be a hell of a lot more palatable and especially from the Falcons who might be the most improved team in the division just looking at the roster they had last year versus the roster they have this year and they're going to have excitement we don't mean to say that this is an unexciting brand of football or that there are no players to watch in this division far from it I think regardless of whether they improve or not and we think they will improve um they're going to play an exciting brand of football and I think for teams that aren't shooting for the Super Bowl that's what fans really want because <laughs> you can be, be watchable <laughs> you can be good or you can be bad you can be boring or you can be exciting but if you are bad and boring people are going to leave in droves so I, again we don't think they're going to be bad we think they're going to be better than the results in 2022 that was seven and ten fourth in the division home record of six and three road record they didn't do a great job when they left ATL. Uh, one and seven was all they could manage away from home. Last five games, two and three, you could say they were figuring it out, but more stumbling to the finish than striding. And all that adds up to an effectiveness summary, which we base on EPA per play, talking about rushing and passing, defending against the run, defending against the pass, scoring points and points allowed. Rushing offense was good for the Falcons last year. Seventh overall in the NFL based on EPA per play. Passing offense wasn't bad. It was 19th. When you're talking about 16 being the dead middle of a 32-team league, that's pretty much right down the middle of the fairway for passing. And with the struggles they had, I think that might be even a better result than some people would expect, having watched the product that they put on the field. Defensive side of the ball, not as good. They start to slip a little bit. Rush defense, 23rd in the league, and this is really the killer. Pass defense in the modern NFL, 29th. Bouncing off the bottom of the league. Couldn't stop other teams from basically walking up and down the field on them using the pass, and that really sunk their season. Points scored, again, dead middle. 365 points, that was good enough for 15th. They allowed 386th, that's down towards 23rd. And if you look at how solid their offensive rankings were, the points match up. If you look at how low their defensive rankings were, points allowed also match up. So we take all six of those numbers, their league ranks, divide by six. Their bootleg power score was 19. That turns out to be the 25th best power score as we rank them in the NFL. It's not terrible. They have lots of room to improve, and we think they will. I was actually also kind of surprised that the power score was quote unquote as low as 25th. Cause I, I do feel like they were a scrappy team last year. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they, they gave people a game. Uh, again, they were not by any means like a threat in the NFC, but I, I didn't think that they were like bottom quartile of the NFL. And I certainly don't think they're going to be bottom quartile this year either, especially seeing how many resources they poured into building up the defense, yeah. you know, I'm drafting Bijan as much as I love Tyler Algier, like Bijan is, an incredible weapon. You know, they got a young receiver we really like in Drake London. Um, the offensive line's good and only got 
better this year. Like uh, McGarry and Lindstrom is the best one-two punch at right tackle, right guard in the entire NFL. They drafted Matthew Bergeron to play left guard for them, or we think left guard for them. <laughs> like th- there's talent here. It's mm-hmm. it's not destitute. Like this is not Arizona. This is not Tampa. Um, I would I would be very surprised if they end up in the bottom quartile again in virtually any category. Now again, are they going to make a run this year? No, I, I I highly doubt that. I would put them firmly in kind of like that Raiders category of like definitely not bad, definitely not elite, probably solidly mid. Will definitely be watchable. Not really sure in the quarterback situation yet, but. You know, could potentially use 2023 as a springboard into a, st- a strong 2024 and 2025 and and see where we go from there. But, yeah, I don't know. I, I think I'm actually going to genuinely enjoy watching this team this year. Yeah, a lot comes down to the quarterback position. We'll talk about that all throughout the show. If Ritter develops more quickly than we think he might, or if he just comes out of the gate hot, he that was one of the selling points for him when he was drafted out of Cincinnati, one of the most ready quarterbacks in terms of maturity, um, ability to learn. So if he's taken the off season and hits the ground running, they come out of the gate, beat some people up on offense. Yeah, they could go on a bit of a run. They could maybe even make a push for the division. Do we think that it's going to go far beyond that this year? No, but again, hot start. Wouldn't put it past them. Do we think it's the most likely result? Probably not. Looking at uh, some of the schematic information that we have, um, and again, this this is more valuable for this team just because of the continuity of the coaching staff. So we expect there's going to be at least some carryover, although I have to imagine the changes in defensive personnel might affect this a little bit. Uh, they were dead average in uh, cover zero last year, which even then like the top teams uh, call cover zero between like six and nine percent. Right. So average for is like a percent and a half. It's not it's not the most common coverage, period, league wide. <laughs> Uh, cover one, which is a lot more common of a coverage. They were relatively average to slightly below average at 18th in terms of calling man coverage with a single high safety. Uh, they were seventh in cover two. They were a team that really did believe in cover two, which we saw a bunch of defenses last year lean more into cover two than we're used to seeing. Uh, they were fourth in cover three. And I do want to, uh, caveat this because we are going to get to, uh, the, the blitz numbers pretty soon here. Fire zone looks like a 3-3 fire zone with three underneath zone defenders and three uh, zone defenders over the top. Those get categorized as cover three because Mm -hmm. it's three deep. Uh, But just know that a lot of those cover three snaps and the Falcons are charted as playing cover three 43% of the time. A lot of those are fire zone calls that got slotted as cover three. Um, So just realize that that's not them playing traditional cover three 43% of the time. Uh, a lot of them is them bringing pressure with three deep zones behind it. Uh, quarters, they were dead average at 16th. Quarter, quarter, half, they were very low at 29th. They only called it 3.1% of the time. And two-man, they were 24th. Now, bringing in the blitz numbers I talked about. They were 21st in terms of bringing pressure on third and short situations, meaning third and one or two yards to go. Keep in mind, in between the 20s, red zone is not something we're talking about here. This is all in between the uh, in between the 20s for numbers. They were dead average in terms of blitzing on third and medium at about 14th, and they were eighth in blitzes on third and seven plus. 
I have to imagine that AJ Terrell's banged up, uh, very down 2022 had some sort of impact on their blitz numbers because I feel like they couldn't hold up in, say, you know, man coverage, maybe as much as they thought they could going into 2022. You know, he kind of started the year rough and again, was banged up a little bit and it just never, it never recovered. Like he had a bad year, just straight up bad year, right? Yep. And so that's why I think partly why they started to lean more into pressure looks is they felt like they couldn't hold up mm. in man coverage as well as they really intended to. Uh, and so especially in third and long situations, if we don't feel good about our front four getting pressure with just four and we don't feel good about our coverage holding up with the back end, <laughs> we got to bring pressure. Right. So that kind of explains the blitz rate. It explains the, the rate of cover three. Um, and then also their stunt percentage overall on third downs huge believer in stunts over there in Atlanta 54.3 percent of all their third down rushes had stunts involved that is third in the NFL so uh, they were definitely doing their best to scheme around the talent they had last year and I think their investment in talent this year on defense tells you all you need to know they they didn't feel like they had the dudes last year so they got boxed in schematically and they want to bring in a lot better dudes this year so that they can open some open themselves up and play uh more than just uh three three fire zone on damn near every third down yeah and they like their edges and uh edge defenders that can move in atlanta and they put that to use with stunts they put them on the move quite a bit it's interesting to look at the curve if you're talking about third and short third and medium third and long it's it's like a perfect line yeah it's like 21, 14, basically seven. So a very uh, linear blitz curve for Atlanta. And it'll be interesting to see with the changes they made on defense, whether that stunt percentage drops from top three in the league to a bit lower. And hopefully for really the entire team's sake, but certainly the defense and especially the secondary, everybody's hoping for a rebound to form that we saw two years ago from A.J. Terrell, which was one of the top five corners in the league. Um, Last year, he was certainly not at that level, and that does change what you can do on defense. Earlier in this series, we talked about guys like uh, Pat Sertan that you can line up and basically say, take that guy away in various coverages, but we're not going to deal with that. Therefore, we can allocate all of our other resources to the remaining receivers. Atlanta was used to being able to do that year mm-hmm. before last, last year. Nope, we can't do that. Okay, now we need to adjust. We need to sort of spread everything a little bit more evenly. And they got picked apart. That past defense EPA we talked about at the top of the show being in the low 20s, one of the reasons that dragged down their power score predominantly. I think they're hoping for a one-shot fix on that, and that is A.J. Terrell coming back. Yes, they made the rush better. They want those two to work in concert, but one thing feeding another Terrell's back and playing really, really well, that number is going to go up all by itself. If the pass rush comes on top of that, maybe they could push up into the top 10. And they've drafted uh, some pass rushers over the last two years that that we both really, really like too. So like there's, again, there's young pieces here that we're big fans of. Also, they got one of the pass rushers I'm a big fan of as a UDFA, but we'll get to, uh, we'll get to Akena a little bit later in the show. Uh, flipping over to the offensive side of the ball uh, to give some more contextual stats to kind of you know, explain the EP, uh, EPA numbers on offense a little bit more. Uh, boy, do they love outside zone in Atlanta. 
58% of all of their runs were outside zone. That is first by a long shot. And when you have Caleb McGarry and you have Lindstrom and they're absolutely wrecking shop uh, as the dynamic duo over on the right-hand side, I, I get it. I, I truly get it because nobody could stop them. Uh, and, I mean, Tyler Algier, who was a day three pick, a rookie running back, who you and I both liked, but he was also one of the most, if not the most productive rookie running back in the entire NFL because of that offensive line. They kicked everybody's ass, and it was very much uh, – if it ain't broke, don't, don't fix, fix it, it. Run game. So they called outside zone and outside zone and outside zone. And and nobody could really plug the hole. Uh, inside zone, they were 29th because why bother? Uh, they were 13th in duo. They were 31st in power. 32nd in counter with a whopping 0%. Like they just straight up didn't call it, which is not common for outside zone heavy teams. You typically see counter... Um, be a, a, a pretty significant, no pun intended, counterpunch for outside zone teams because they start seeing fronts that are specifically designed to stop outside zone and counters a run that counters those fronts. Uh, Falcons didn't believe in that, mainly probably because people couldn't stop their outside zone anyway, so they didn't need to call counter. That's the context <laughs> of that number is if they can't stop what you're doing primarily, you don't need a counter. Yeah. You just keep doing the thing. Uh, they were 31st in draw and then relatively average about 17th in pin and pull, about 5%. So, uh, yeah, pretty much, let's see, what is it, 71 plus 18, so 89% if my rough head napkin math uh, is right here, 89% of their runs were outside zone, inside zone, and duo. And they just didn't do a whole lot else because they didn't have to. Find you somebody that loves you like Atlanta loves outside zone. Mm -hmm. That is what they are going to hang their hat on. It's what they built their personnel for in the run game. Run game, as we said at the top, was really effective, and it was effective because of outside zone. Like they did it the most, it worked the most. They didn't even have to go to the counter punch, which is counter. It just, that's it. That's what they're going to do. No surprise to teams on the second half of their schedule. Like, they could see it just as easily like, okay, they're charting outside zone, outside zone, outside zone, duo, outside zone, outside zone, duo. Wow. Um, guys, <laughs> we gotta we gotta set the edges. Like, that's it. We gotta set the edges this week. That's all we gotta do. So it's it's not a surprise, but again, if you can execute and you have people to do it and they stay healthy, which they largely did, unlike what we said on the defensive side of the ball, you've got the horses to do it, you're lined up to do it, they do it well. People don't stop it. There's no reason to go away from it. Their passing game also uh, definitely reflected the type of run game they had because it was very uh, like late 2000s Gary Kubiak Texans um, where it was a lot of bootlegs, a lot of long developing play action shots. Uh, you know, average time to throw was the third slowest in the league, predominantly because they were so play action heavy, yeah. about 3.7, 3.07 seconds, average time to throw. Uh, they were first in play action rate, 43%, which is nuts. Like that's, that's a lot. Yeah. Uh, they were seventh in terms of percentage of their yards that came through the air rather than after the catch, 56.9% of their yards came through the air. They were first in average depth of target. 11.1 yards down the field and they were 27th in big time throw percentage and 12th overall in yards per attempt so again it was hand the ball off hand the ball off 
long developing bootlegs with play action shots down the field. Um, I, I respect the conviction to do the same thing every week. Um, I do wish that they mixed in a little bit of quick game, like a little bit of, you know, spread you out and let Desmond Ritter play point guard. Maybe they didn't think that he was ready for it. Uh, I, I do feel like even in the Gary Kubiak days, like they would at least let Schaub do that a little bit. Uh, and maybe in year two, we'll get to see that. But they they kind of did the same thing every week. And in the weeks where it worked well and the defense was soft and they couldn't stop it, they, they look like a great football team. And in, in the weeks where they couldn't get it going, they just didn't have a, a, a second option and they lost. That's the t-shirt for the 2022 Falcons committed to the bit. Either it worked or it didn't. <laughs> we're going to do it. You know we're going to do it. This is what we do. The two sides do play off each other in terms of, I like the Kubiak comparison and, and even farther back, um, you know, the elder Shanahan in terms of Denver. Like, we're going to run, we're going to run, we're going to run, we're going we're gonna to draw you in as hard as we can on play action, and we're going to do something with that. It's not going to be a quick turn, crossing route. Like, we're going outside the numbers. We're going we're gonna to chuck it up there. They didn't have a great completion percentage on those shots, but they took them. And those numbers are all reflected. And I, I think these are sort of some of the most homogenous numbers for any offense we've seen so far of run game looks like this, pass game looks like this, and there's not a lot in between. Not to get too far ahead of ourselves, uh, by the way, but you can also see that I think they're, they might double down a little bit on that just based on some of the additions they've made. Like, Mac Hollins is basically built for this style of offense. Um, you know, Bijan as a workhorse back is going to be phenomenal in this style of offense. And him and Algier kind of just, you know, toting the rock together. You know, 35 total carries a game between the two of them is, is kind of about what I expect. Um, like, th this is this is them. Mm -hmm. This is what they do. And... I guess for better or worse, we'll we'll see what happens in 2023. But I, I get the sense that as long as Desmond Ritter is the quarterback, they are going to be as safe with him as humanly possible and protect him with play action and protect him with, you know, their run pass ratio being absurdly high and, and protect him with conservatism until he proves to them that that they don't need to. That he can hit the shots downfield that he can throw a lot of the passes that he threw at Cincinnati. They threw a lot of those passes. It's it's not antithetical to how they built the offense. They didn't grab a dink and dunk passer and then say, wait, we want you to take, you know, five and seven step long developing play action drops and, and shoot it outside the numbers. He completed a lot of those long passes in Cincinnati. He could do the point guard stuff as well, but he's got a skill set that fits with the offense. We'll have to see if he can get that going at NFL speed. They've got receivers to do it. You talked about Mac Collins. Mac Collins has been running a version of this offense since college. Mm -hmm. And he I thought he was one of the more underrated pickups. We'll get to all of that, but they have assembled it and they do seem like they are pressing ahead. If you know, burning the ships, if you will. Like this is <laughs> this is what we're doing. We got even more guys to do more of it, but we're not, we're not leaving. We're not turning away from this. This is the direction we want to go, and we're just gonna we're just gonna add sauce here. Looking at the power structure that is uh, burning those ships, so to speak, I really do like what Terry Fontenot's done uh, since he's gotten there. Again, we're in year three of his tenure, and I, I, 
I think he's strung together some pretty nice drafts. Uh, Arthur Smith, I'm not entirely sure yet. Like this, I don't want to say it's a make or break year, but again, with them committing so heavy to the bit, uh, bit's got to start working. Uh, so we'll see. Uh, again, willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, I don't think it's make or break, but I do think we will know a lot more at the end of this year about... We'll, we'll know by Halloween. Yeah, how effective this is going to be. And if it's working, like I said, if they reel off some early wins with this strategy, with this formula, you know, I think his seat... I don't, I don't want to say his seat's hot. I'd say his seat is sort of right in the middle right now. Uh, if they reel off some wins, his seat gets even cooler. His stability is is reinforced. If they are not able to string together a bunch of wins in the first six to eight weeks, his seat's going to warm up a little bit. I would like to take the opportunity uh, while we're on the topic, by the way. I want to get Falcons fans' opinion on what's going on here because I think they're also aware that uh, you know the ships have been burned. They're aware that they are committed to this style. They're aware that this team has zero shot at Caleb Williams or Drake may because they're too good. I'm not saying that they're an elite team, but they're not a bottom 10 team. They are directly in the middle of the league and Falcons fans know it. And some of them are okay with that because they've seen what the bottom looks like. And some of them hate that because they feel like they can't go any higher than they are right now with their current roster construction. Mm -hmm. Or maybe some of them don't even believe in Arthur Smith. Again, I'm jury's out for me on that one. I would love to hear from Falcons fans where where their mentality is right now. Because this is such a not even middle third, I'm talking like middle fifteen percent of the league type NFL team, where you're looking down at a whole bunch of clubs that are worse and you're looking up at a whole bunch of clubs that are better, and it's just kind of an odd place to be going into 2023. I recognize that place as a longtime Bears fan where Chicago for a long time was solidly in the middle. They always were close to 500. They were always going to come up with a pick that was outside of the top 10, but not in the bottom 10, right? You were going to be picking 13th, 15th, mm-hmm. <laughs> 16th, which is not good enough to you know change the franchise in terms of quarterback necessarily. And we're not sure really I don't think to be fair that Ritter's had a fair shot yet he hasn't right we don't know what he is this is the year but again he's going to play from early on there's no challenge to that he is the anointed starter and he's going to get all the reps We're, we're going to see all the things he has a good surrounding cast it's not like a quarterback that's drafted into a situation where the offensive line's full of holes and you know he's running for his life every down again the team's too good for that So it is going to be a solid assessment, a level playing field, if you will, for that assessment. But we're going to know by the middle of the season whether or not he's a guy that you can stick with and run with and develop with or not. If not, they are in that no man's land. They are in limbo. They're going to have to they're going to have to change course if that's the case. Beyond Terry Fontenot and Arthur Smith, by the way, uh, they do have some really intriguing and, uh, dare I say, legendary <laughs> assistant coaches on their roster. I wore my Texans gear today in honor of TJ Yates, the Bengal slayer himself, Texans legend. Uh, I will root for TJ anywhere he goes 
for the rest of his coaching career. Yeah, they've got a lot of interesting coaches. So they do have an assistant head coach. They are one of those teams. Uh, his title is assistant head coach slash defense, not defensive coordinator, just assistant head coach slash defense. First time I'd seen that. That's Jerry Gray. Very, very experienced coach. Has been a defensive coordinator with other teams. Offensive coordinator is Dave Ragone. Uh, his last stop before Atlanta, uh, like many people on this roster, was Chicago. Um, at one point, I think last year, I think we said there were 17 people that were attached to Chicago. Something. Yeah, like realm. 14 yeah. players and two coaches and two executives or something that had ended up in Atlanta. So Atlanta was the Chicago halfway house, I guess. Dave Ragone was quarterback's coach previously. He also ran the offense last year. I think the jury's out on him for me. He feels very middle of the road. He's not bad. Uh, he certainly is a decent play caller, but at the same time, I don't look at most of the things they accomplished last year and go, oh, wow, that was awesome. That was really creative. That was a great sequence. That was a great half. Not to mention so much of this offense is Arthur Smith's DNA, like going back to when Arthur Smith was the play caller in Tennessee. So I'm like, how much of it is – Ragone versus Arthur Smith, like it just feels like Arthur Smith's offense to me. I again, I, 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 I can't definitively say no, but and it was the same for Ragone in Chicago. Nagy was calling the plays, and he was the quarterbacks coach, and then uh, he was an offensive coordinator. He had an offensive role there, but it was like, oh, how much? And it's not indifferent, uh, not different than the Andy Reid, Eric Bieniemy relationship that we talked about in the Chiefs episode, but. Defensive coordinator, Ryan Nielsen, and then special teams is Marquise Williams. Uh, on offense, other notable coaches, you talked about TJ Yates. He's their wide receivers coach. He's got a fun group. Uh, fascinated to see what he can do with year two, Drake London. That's, I think, one of the most interesting players on this roster mm -hmm. is Drake London, who has, I don't want to say a unique skill set because it's not unique, but in terms of the amount that he leans into a like basketball skill set, on an NFL football field. It does set him apart with play style, with athleticism, with size. There's just a lot you can do with him creatively and really interested to see how TJ can help mold him into what I think is, I think he has superstar potential um, depending on his usage. So it'll be fascinating to watch that journey. And then Justin Peel is the tight end coach. Um, one of the greatest underused weapons in the NFL in his room, Kyle Pitts. This is a point of, we were airing grievances earlier. Mm -hmm. I have a grievance with the way the Falcons do and do not use Kyle Pitts. Um, when he was coming out, we said he's so talented physically as a player, skill-wise. He can do anything. He could be an X receiver. He could be the top tight end in the league. He could do all this. And he's been solid, and he's so much better than that it's as a through player. No, I mean, there. I don't want to say through no real fault of his own. There were some routes and – Again, I did a whole film group episode literally on how Kyle Pitts was used last year because he just wasn't producing. And I was like, what's going on what's here? So happening? I did an entire episode on it. Yep. And like there were some routes where I felt like, you know, Pitts was a little bit lazy on it. But I, I also feel like Pitts was a little bit lazy on it because, quite frankly, they didn't give him that many opportunities. And, and they weren't giving him like the prime opportunities. Like they, they run a concept called Dagger quite a bit where it's like a clear out seam and then a dig comes in behind it and like the dig is it's designed to get the dig open right and oftentimes they were using pits as the decoy seam route yeah. rather than giving him the dig they were giving everybody in the roster the dig except Kyle Pitts 
And then, you know, they weren't giving him like the deep cross opportunities on play action. They kept him in the block on a lot of them. And they were giving those deep crosses to everybody else. Um, it just felt like he, he was either being used as a decoy or a blocker and never the primary target. And I have to imagine that some of those lazy routes were, to be honest, frustration. Because tired it, of it. He's a human. Yeah. And, and if I was him and I wasn't, you know, if I was one of the best tight end prospects ever and my offense was actively not giving me the ball on purpose, I'd be kind of frustrated too. Not to mention, you know, he got banged up a little bit as well, you know, of course, right after I made that episode. But I I sincerely hope that they start designing, they don't even have to design new concepts, run the same concepts, but run them for Pitts. Use Hollins as the clear out and give Pitts the dagger. You know, just get him involved, do something. It's not that they don't have um, very current, <laughs> high-level, high-functioning offenses to steal some plays from. Mm-hmm. Travis Kelsey is the leading receiver in Kansas City. He's a tight end. 1,338 yards last year. It can be done. There are lots of examples, and they just don't do it. Frustrates me a little bit. We'll see if it changes with Ritter at the helm full-time. Um Justin Peel played 10 seasons in the NFL himself, so he could certainly relate to the players on that level. On defense and special teams, Steve Jackson is a secondary coach. Pretty stacked group to work with. Year one of him being in charge of the secondary, he's got Jesse Bates, A.J. Terrell, Richie Grant, Mike Hughes, Jeff Akuda. That's a pretty good group of talent to be working with. There's, well, hmm. in my opinion, yes and no. Sure. When Terrell's healthy, mm-hmm. Yes. Um, when Bates is Bates is a yes for me as well. Richie Grant, I'm not sure yet. I'm I'm kind of eh, on Richie Grant personally. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike Hughes, I think is fine, and then Jeff Akuda, uh, boy, he's hit and miss, right? And and you know, obviously the injury, I think derailed his career a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that they they sent him down to Atlanta in a very cheap trade just to. Try to give him a fresh start. Clear the deck. But I think there's three guys here that I believe in and two that I'm, I believed in before the draft, but since they got in the NFL, of course, referring to Richie Grant and Jeff Okuda, I've been kind of eh, on. Yeah, I don't disagree with that take. I think it is some fun raw materials to work with. We'll see how any or all of them sink or swim. Terrell, we're looking for a return to form. Jesse Bates, we're looking for him to continue his very good form. Um, Steve Jackson has an interesting batch of players to work with. He played nine seasons for the Oilers and Titans himself. And then Frank Bush is the linebackers coach. Uh, interesting starting group. <laughs> Two-thirds of it's from uh, Montana State and Idaho, which I always think is interesting. Very athletic Montanans and Idahoans as <laughs> yes. well. So Troy Anderson, one of the reasons they felt comfortable running cover to athletic linebacker who has the skill and the range to cover in that defensive coverage the newly added newly added Caden Ellis who they stole from their division rival Staints in free agency um and created some nice results with Troy Anderson down the stretch last year he was a player I was sort of not as high on as everybody else I saw the potential but I was like man he's got to develop he really did start to develop in the second half of the year and I'm looking for that curve to continue for him um, Frank Bush was chosen by the Oilers, so a lot of Oilers-Titans uh, connections here on the coaching staff. In the 1985 draft, he earned all-rookie honors, and then he got injured, and he had to retire the next year. 
I remember that. And he went into coaching. Yeah. So and he coached with the Texans too in Houston. Um, he was uh, he was beloved until he wasn't, <laughs> <laughs> as many coaches are in this league. But fascinating coaching staff. Again, it really does start um, right up at the top and commitment to the bit. How well the quarterback works into that. Uh, whether or not they change course, do we see adaptation if it's not working? Um, I think is maybe one of the most interesting storylines. And then how the new pieces fit or the existing pieces that haven't been leveraged. Do they change up with that? If they don't, honestly, I hope they trade Kyle Pitts because if you're not going to use him, try and get something for him and, and get him out because he feels like a player that can have a very different second act either in Atlanta with a different offense or with a different team that uses him differently. They got a second round pick for Mosin. Are you telling me you can't get a one for Kyle Pitts? I would be tempted uh, if, as as long as everything's right physically with Kyle Pitts. Like you said, he was banged up a little bit last year, but boy, if you go back and look at that film, there's just, there's so few things that he can't do. He can yeah. do basically everything at any level of the field. You just have to line it up for him. And if you highlighted London and Pitts, I don't care what you call Pitts in terms of his role, that could be one of the most dynamic twosomes in terms of receivers in the entire league. Speaking of Kyle Pitts, by the way, about as good a transition as I'm going to get, uh, despite all of our grievances about how he was used, despite all of our grievances about his actual tangible production in uh, a, a banged-up uh misused season for him where he had what 300 something yards 328 i think is what you said 356 i think it wasn't a lot it was not a lot <laughs> he had lot. 28 catches for 356 yards and two touchdowns despite all of that if you're going into best ball drafts right now he is still going as te5 that is how talented he is that people are still will not holding spit out. the bit. Oh, and boy. he could pay that off. He absolutely he could because you go should. back to his rookie year where he had you know a thousand yards as a rookie, which like never happens for tight ends mm -hmm. ever. And so I feel people still know that's in there. Yep. They just need to commit to using him, and of course he needs to stay healthy too. And he, he honestly, like he could outperform TE five under those circumstances. You know, if he's getting a thousand yards and close to ten touchdowns, that's off the top of my head, that's probably top five tight end numbers, and that's it's very doable. Three or four. So I, I get it. I totally get it. Now, do I believe that's what's going to happen? I'm not 100% sure. I, like, I'm hoping for it, but I'm not 100% sure. Right. What I am sure of, if we're looking at the receiving core, you know, obviously Drake London is the clear number one here. He's going as wide receiver 23 on underdog right now, so... You know, somewhere in the late wide receiver two range as far as fantasy goes. Uh, Mac Hollins, who's the wide receiver two on this team, yes. is going as wide receiver 103 on underdog, going about 215 ADP. So you're getting him very, 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 very late, like last round. Yep. Considering what Mac can do mm -hmm. uh, as a deep threat, as a yak threat, as a jet sweep threat, and we know that Arthur, uh, in the past, has featured you know jet sweeps and stuff like that pretty predominantly in his run game. I feel like that is a tremendous undervaluation of what Mac is going to do for this team. Like his competition for snaps at wide receiver is 
Scotty Miller is probably his biggest competition. Obviously, mm-hmm. Cordero Patterson's still there, but sure. at this point in Patterson's career, I think he's more going to be used for either high leverage downs as a running back or special teams, or if they have you know, some screens mm-hmm. that they really like against certain looks, they'll give those to him because he's still great on those. But in terms of like pure wide receiver snaps, it's going to be Drake London and, and Mac Collins is yeah. what I would guess, right? So getting him literally in the 200-something pick overall yeah. seems like stealing for me. And he's another one of these guys where I always have him in my back pocket knowing that I can get him in the last round because people just don't respect uh, like the, the, the ceiling. Like not just like the season long ceiling, but the game to game ceiling. This is a guy who can get eleven points in one play with a fifty yard touchdown. Like he's done it many times throughout his career. I I've never understood why people never pay attention to Mac Collins. Like he's he's solid like that. Draft status stays with you. If I had a big foam hammer, I would be hammer Mac Collins. Pick him for sure. Been a huge fan of his since UNC, and he has improved as a pro player. Started out as exactly what you would have thought based on how he came into the league. Special teams player that earned very few primary snaps on offense. Got better, uh, you know, got enough snaps on offense that he got free agency deal to move teams. Got even more snaps on offense, was featured even more highly. It's taken four or five years for him to, to sort of roll into this status, and now he's a legit wide receiver too but people are still treating him like he was that receiver coming out of unc that you know wasn't highly thought of and it's a mistake and it's one you can capitalize on if you're playing on underdog fantasy go get mac collins i need that big foam thor hammer i do it basically means that on average again if we're looking at 32 teams you know three receivers on the field and starting 11 personnel on average there's see if he's 103 Every single team is on average getting three receivers drafted from their team before Matt Collins goes off the board, and then some. Incorrect. <laughs> like, I get it. There are some teams that have three receivers that are oh, better sure. than Mac. Like, you look at Seahawks, C- Cincinnati, right? Yep. But in terms of target share, in terms of role, in terms of explosive ability, which is what matters on underdog, because, again, it's best ball, so we're looking for peaks and the valleys don't matter as much because we're not setting a lineup it's just whatever points you get or whoever on your roster gets the most points that's who you get credit for right yep. this is somebody who can get 80 yards and a touchdown on four touches that's what matters to me so again if i'm if i'm drafting any falcons player um you know if it's Bijan, i have to get him in the first round <laughs> obviously um you know algier is going pretty late rb 48 which is also pretty low for him but like if i'm pure value hunting yeah. it's going to be mac Collins. um do you feel like algier at rb 48 by the way because i know that you're an algier fan does that also strike you as a little bit low because I, I think a lot of people are, are treating uh Bijan as like going to get 70 percent of the touches and algier gets 30 percent very rarely does any running back at 70%. I would more treat this like a 55-45 type thing. And I think there's even more reason to think it's going to be that way because the sort of early news out of Falcons camp is that they're going to use Bijan all over the place. And they used him that way at Texas. He was lined up wide. He was lined up in the slot. 
Um, he had multiple touches, and the Falcons seem to be leaning into that versatility, which would mean, you know, on every snap that he lines up out wide, I would imagine Algiers is going to be lined up in the backfield unless they go empty. So I think your target share split that you're thinking about is probably closer to what's going to happen because there are going to be snaps where Bijan's on the field, but he's not the running back. He may or may not get the reception at that point. Um, certainly happens less often than when you're lined up as the primary back and chances that they hand it off to you. So feels a little bit low. He was really productive last year. He fully understands how to run behind this line. That's something we don't talk about all that often. Uh, we treat a lot of these pieces as interchangeable, running backs and offensive linemen. Um, it's not always that way. Learning how to read your blocks, understanding that timing. He's already got all that down. He had a very productive year, basically behind this line last year. So he's not going to take any time to get up to speed. He's just going to pick up where he left off. So feels like a slight undervaluation, but it is the sort of Bijan glow and people fearing that he's going to steal all the touches. And look, when we get to the regular season, they might try him out wide a couple times and go, that doesn't work and slot Bijan in and give him 70% of the touches because he's Bijan. But with the early returns out of OTAs and them saying they really do want to try him in a wide variety of roles, feels like a slight undervaluation. By the way, if you yourself are also a believer in Bijan, which I know everybody's a believer in Bijan, but if you want to own shares of him anywhere in fantasy uh, and potentially make a lot of money while doing it in Best Ball Mania, where again, there's $15 million in prizes to go around. I believe it's $3 million in first place, if I recall correctly. Uh, you know, or if you want to look at uh, his season-long totals and you want to go either higher or lower on yards and touchdowns, or if you just want to do pickums during the season, or if you want to do it for something that's not football, whether it's baseball or basketball when that starts up again, or hockey or esports or whatever. Really, whatever you want to do in Underdog Fantasy, you can do it. Obviously, they specialize in best ball, but they do so much more. Promo code BOOTLEG will match your deposit up to $100. So whatever you put in up to $100, they'll double it. They'll give you a free extra $100 to use on the platform if that's what you happen to deposit. So it's a really, really good deal, especially if you're already planning on doing fantasy anyway, right? Or doing pickems during the season anyway. So it's just kind of free value. Might as well get it now while you can. Uh, we thank Underdog for sponsoring not just this show, but this entire season and everything beyond this entire season. Couldn't do all this without them. Uh, and with that, EJ, let's get to free agency. Not too many players that were lost in terms of a large percentage of snaps, but some role players that were important to the Falcons. Michael Pruitt played 30% of the snaps as their second tight end. It was an important role in their offense, but certainly not irreplaceable. Rashawn Evans, 98.4% of their snaps at linebacker. That one, they're, they have a plan for it, but it's going to hurt a little bit. Casey Hayward moves on. Isaiah Oliver also moves out of the defensive backfield. Elijah Wilkinson at right tackle. Cardinals picked him up. He played 54, almost 55% of the snaps for them last year. Um, Zacchaeus at wide receiver goes to the Eagles. I love that pickup for the Eagles, but he did play 70% of the snaps. Again, they've already filled that hole with Mac Collins. You can argue about whether you think that's an upgrade, a downgrade, or just a straight across trade. And then Marcus Mariota also goes to the Eagles. Again, he played 73% of the snaps as the starter last year before Ritter took over late. Um, don't think that really figures into their plans. Uh, it's not necessarily something they need to replace in terms of snaps, but it does give them a liability if Ritter goes down with injury. Yeah, I, I wasn't uh, 
I wasn't super pressed about any of the losses here overall, other than maybe Isaiah Oliver, because I think he's a really good nickel. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously he didn't develop into the outside corner that I thought he could be uh, when he was coming out of Colorado, but he ended up being a, a very solid nickel, got a decent contract to go be a nickel elsewhere. Uh, so, you know, a little, little sad to see him go. But other than that, uh, I mean, the more important tight end uh, between Pruitt and Hesse, they kept Hesse. So, again, not unexpected, but I'm happy to see that they did that because Hesse was a better player for them than Michael Pruitt anyway. Uh, you know, Caleb McGarry was the big one. Like, they had to save money to get him back, and they did. Gave him a really nice contract. Uh, let's see, what was it, like $11.5 million per, per year, yep. technically? Um, only 15 in guarantees, which I found somewhat interesting considering how good he's been uh, not just last year, but over the last couple of years, you know, arguably the best run blocking right tackle in the league. Only got 15 million guaranteed. Not really sure why, but great deal for Atlanta and also good job for Caleb getting paid. Uh, Lorenzo Carter, they also brought back on a relatively manageable four and a half million dollar a year deal. Uh, Chris Lindstrom, he was the big, big dollar sign, uh, you know, 20 and a half million a year. Uh, arguably, the not even arguably, last year was the best guard in football. Uh, and you know is getting paid like it now. He got a monstrous forty-eight million dollar guaranteed. Now I definitely think Lindstrom is the better player between him and McGarry, but the disparity between guaranteed just kind of caught me off guard. But I'm happy to see that both of them are back in Atlanta. They were the best one-two punch on the right side for any team in the NFL, and keeping them together was of utmost importance. Seems like they certainly didn't want to let Lindstrom out of the building. They really didn't want to let McGarry go either. Lindstrom, they knew was going to be a bigger deal. They got that done. And McGarry, I'm not sure either why he would accept that low of a guarantee. Certainly, there's a market for his services uh, around the NFL. I don't know if he just didn't entertain offers, doesn't want to move, uh, likes the collaboration he has going with Lindstrom on that side. Uh, Whatever it is, it's a great deal for Atlanta. And they keep, again, a very good side of their offensive line together. That has been a real driver for, we talked about it at the top, the components or the tent pole of their scheme, right? Outside zone, those guys are preeminent run blockers and they keep both of them. In terms of third party additions, okay, <laughs> might uh, might need to take a breath yeah, here breathe in, in the middle of this one. A lot of names have been brought in from the outside. Uh, Johnu Smith uh, brought in at $7.5 to replace Michael Pruitt essentially. Uh, so it's going to be him, Hesse, and of course Pitts as your, well, I don't know what order we put the one, two, three in. Pitts is the one, uh, and I I guess maybe it depends on run or pass whether or not it's going to be Hesse versus Janu as the other tight end, but Janu has familiarity with Arthur Smith, so that one kind of made a little sense to me. Obviously, we talked about Mac Hollins a lot, two and a half million for somebody as explosive as him. Great deal there. Calais Campbell, Still going at the age of 37, still pulling in $7 million deals. Uh, one of the best defensive linemen of his generation. Great locker room leader. Uh, couldn't be happier to see him there uh, to kind of guide some of the younger pieces they've got. Mike Hughes they brought in for three and a half. Uh, Jeff Okuda, obviously they traded for, uh, let's see, Caden Ellis. We mentioned him, brought him in from the Saints. David Onyemana. Brought him in to be uh, another piece on the interior defensive line at a fairly reasonable $11.6 million deal. Given the current IDL market, Mm. not bad. 
They also brought in Bud Dupree at $3 million to add to the edge rotation. They brought in Jesse Bates at $16 million to be their new uh, free safety and a damn good one at that. They brought in Scotty Miller to be a slot receiver slash another deep threat for them. Taylor Heineke to be a backup and uh, hopefully a veteran guide for Desmond Ritter there. Oh, God. Okay. Breon Borders, Trey Flowers, Penny Hart, Ethan Greenridge. Really goes on and on and on. Like, they... They have completely transformed this roster through free agency. They had a lot of money to spend, and they weren't afraid to spend it. They they spent it in interesting ways. You talked about the Mac Hollins deal. To get a starting number two wide receiver for $2.5 million, um, seems a bit low, kind of a bit like Caleb McGarry deal, but good for them to be able to pick up a player they think is going to be really effective in that role and, and take those snaps for well below market value. And the Caden Ellis deal is kind of the other way. I think he was a very good player for the Saints, but in that middle, middle linebacker range, which is about six million, and he gets mm, closer. He gets over seven. Um, strange negotiations, differentiation. Wide receiver you would think of as the more preeminent uh, role, and the one that's more well compensated typically. Middle linebacker these days, a little bit less so but they do it in reverse. Don't really care if we're just looking at the players they got. I really like Caden Ellis. I like him in this system. And the same with Mac Hollins. It's just a bit strange on some of the valuations. But if you just look at the overall like girth of this free agency class, one of the largest ones we've talked about, and certainly one of the largest ones we've talked about in terms of um, starting or basically second string guys that will rotate in quite a bit, more of these guys are going to play and play often than a lot of the lists we look at, and there's just more of them. Their draft was also really, really good on top of everything they brought in in free agency, and they're stacking this draft class onto a draft class last year that we also really liked, and the one before that that we liked as well. Uh, and this one was both star-studded in terms of who they got at the top, and I think some of the depth pieces they got on day three, especially Clark Phillips, how the fuck did they get Clark Phillips in the fourth round? I don't know. But, you know, basically from start to finish, they brought in pieces that I loved. It wasn't the biggest draft class. It was only six names deep, but it was a very, very good one. A lot of talent here. Round one, pick eight, B. John Robinson out of Texas. One of the cleanest, if not the cleanest overall player in the draft in terms of skill, off-field performance, uh, medicals, everything else. Bijan should be a star in this league. There was a question about how far he would go. I lost a bottle bet on the fact that he went in the top 10, and I said, even when I made the bet, the only liability here is the Falcons. If he makes it past the Falcons, I'll win the bet. If he doesn't, I lose. Of course they pick him, <laughs> and I owe my buddy Frank and Austin a bottle for that. Uh, round two, pick 38, one of the guys you really liked in this draft, Matthew, tackled Matthew Bergeron, who is going to play left guard for them out of Syracuse. Incredibly athletic guy, fits their profile, outside zone, able to move, nasty run blocker, um, should drop into that system, I would say, fairly cleanly and develop oh, yeah. fairly quickly. I think he's going to be there, Joe Tooney. Hmm? Like, I, I love him there. It's perfect. Um, you know, he's got tackle feet and pass pro. He's so incredibly athletic as a mover. Like, his first step is so explosive. Um, it's different than Cole Strange, but I have very similar vibes uh, in terms of the fit that I had with Cole Strange last year when Strange went to New England. And I was like, 
ooh, I think New England's going to run more outside zone this year because he's really good at that. And then, of course, New England ran more outside zone than we're used to seeing from them. Uh, Bergeron, I mean, he's going to an offense we already know runs outside zone, but it's the same kind of athleticism, the same kind of quickness, same kind of first step. Like, it's it's such a perfect fit. Couldn't imagine a better place for him to go. He's not going to be a pro bowler as a rookie, but I do think if there was a destination where Matthew Bergeron can go as a day two guard where he could be a pro bowler at some point, yeah. Atlanta's the spot. And sooner rather than later with that particular fit and that particular player. Round three, pick 75. One of the players I thought was most overrated or underrated in this draft, Edge Zach Harrison out of Ohio State. Huge athlete, massive amount of reach. Um, has some athleticism, but that's not really his game. His game is being able to hold people off, hold the point of attack with those long arms, can be explosive in the short areas to make tackles. Really like adding him to their rotation there on the defensive line. Round four, you talked about Clark Phillips the third out of Utah, the cornerback. Player we both really like, just kind of faded down the stretch. People worried about a lot of things that weren't tape-based. There were size concerns. There were speed concerns. He didn't run that fast uh, in testing. On tape, one of the most physical, instinctive, smart players, always around the ball, always involved in the play, makes plays when he's there, not afraid to mix it up, played on a you know Utah defense that's been described as you know the SEC of the West, yeah. right? Very, very physical if you're going to play on Super Kyle Willingham. technically clean as well. Like his technique was great. Uh, really love Clark Phillips. And he had one of those sort of almost unexplainable slides, right? Whenever he said, why don't you have Clark Phillips higher up? for anybody on their list where they had him lower down than I did. And it was always something that had happened after he'd gotten off the field. Yeah, I I, I don't know. I've never understood why he slipped that far. Like, I get it. Third round, I could see because he wasn't the biggest guy and, and you know, the long speed. But if you look at the footwork, if you look at the short air explosiveness, if you look at the instincts, even just as a nickel, yeah. Like just as a nickel, let's say, let's say, okay, he's too small to survive outside. Fine. As a nickel, he should have been minimum a third round pick. They got him in the fourth round. As far as I'm concerned, it's great value. Absolutely. Great player. Love the fit. Slotting in with what I think is a very talented secondary. Uh, no round five picks for them. No round six picks for them. All the way down to round seven pick 224. Safety DeMarco Hellums, uh, Hellums out of Alabama. Liked him as a player. Thought seventh round was uh, more than appropriate value for them. He's going to start off as a special teamer, possibly play in three safety alignments. But again, they imported some very talented safeties and free agency. He's going to have to play his way into that role. And another round seven pick, a 225, just one pick later. Um, offensive guard, uh, Joe Von Gwynn out of South Carolina. Great class. Uh, you know, kind of leaned more into what they want to do, right? Uh, we, we've talked about that as like a theme of the day of here's what we do well. We're going to keep doing it. They got a, an offensive lineman who, A, has tackle versatility. Like I thought he definitely could have played tackle in the NFL, um, but is a top-tier guard in a zone system. They got the best running back for an offense that loves to run the shit out of the ball. They got Zach Harrison, you know, a big, long, edge-setting edge uh that is a little bit different than than what they got in Arnold, Arnold Ebikiti last year. Yeah. So it gives them a little bit different flavor. Obviously, we talked about Phillips. Like, I'm even if just those top four. Yeah. <laughs> like, take out Helms and take out Gwynn, which, you know, 
seventh rounders. We can't discount them making the roster here, but even just the top four. I loved everything about that class. Um, and their UDFAs, they just kept on going. Uh, I want to talk about Akene and Achukwu. Yep. You know, big, big edge from Rice. You know, 265-pounder they got from Rice. Uh, I'll be honest, not that far off Zach Harrison for me. Mm. Um, you know, you watch the, the USC tape, which Rice didn't play against a whole lot of top competition, but they did play against Caleb Williams in USC, and he absolutely beat the snot out of them was tossing their offensive line everywhere. They could not handle his power. He's relentless, like absolutely incredible motor, um, you know, played inside, played outside. I th- I'm i really, really surprised he didn't get a draft pick thrown his way uh, just because I thought his tape was so good. Athletically, like, you know, when he tested the combine, he didn't he didn't blow you away with the numbers, but I did not think there was anything in there that was like disqualifying. No. So maybe there was a medical. I, I, maybe. I don't know. Like, I know he was... Uh, he did uh, sustain a hand injury during the Shrine Bowl, but like you know, it's a hand injury. Who cares, right? So, I don't know. I love Akena Anachuku. I think he's going to make the roster. And man, him learning from Calais Campbell is going to be a treat. Can't wait for that. Explosive hand use, great power in the short area. It wasn't just the USC tape. You see him blow people up very, very quickly. Is able to get on top of offensive line, then get them out of the way and bring himself into position to make the play, which he did very often. And on top of all that, he's a film room subscriber. Yeah, he's a longtime subscriber. Been watching the show for a long time, which I did not know until I met him at the Shrine Bowl. That's right. He came up and introduced himself. Uh, and that was after we watched him kick ass at practice. That was pretty cool. Yeah, he came up to us and said, I, I want to be interviewed. I want to be on the show. And we were like, well, sure, we can find a spot for you. No problem. And he said, I've been watching your channel. It's just one of those surreal moments. that's super fun. Great player. Um, I think he's got a very good spot to make the roster. Not sure why he didn't get a late round pick just based on his tape thrown his direction. And then Clifford Chatham, uh, the cornerback from UTSA, uh, they signed him after minicamp. We saw him when we went down and watched UTSA play Texas at DKR. Um, Outside shot to make the roster more of a practice squad candidate. But again, always interested in the guys that made it through minicamp and got an offer then. Mm -hmm. They're basically there on a what is sometimes a one-day tryout basis. I mean, there can be. Oh, that's literally what it is. (laughs) No more high leverage spot, right? Make or break. Show up and impress people in one day. Um, Very few players throughout the league get that offer after one or two days of a rookie minicamp. Um, Chatham did, so that's notable. Uh, Doesn't mean he's going to make an impact this year, no. Uh, Obviously, they saw something that they liked that they wanted to try and develop. He'll be a bottom-of-the-roster player until future notice, but, um, you know, a productive UDFA class. That brings us finally to the report card, our final two segments of the day. Uh, First being report card, second being ceiling and floor. Uh, Report card, obviously, is us giving one of a few different grades to four different categories front office, coaching, offensive talent, and defensive talent. And we're grading whether we think it got better, it got worse, or if it's the same. Front office, um, not that we think the front office got better, but I do think that uh, they are solidly trending up and have been trending up in the Fontenot regime basically every year. I thought they did a great job in free agency. They didn't lose any key pieces. They brought in a bunch of key pieces. They're stacking great drafts together. Early returns on the Fontenot regime are spectacular to me. Very, very solid in terms of roster building and supporting what they want to run. Again, as long as they're committed to this particular bit, we can agree or disagree about 
how effective that how effective that bit is. But if you're going to run it, you need the pieces to do it. And in terms of GM bringing them raw materials to make it work, he's doing a great job. Coaching, uh, we're just going to go steady on this one, straight across, even. I mean, it's largely the same staff, so can't really go anything other than yeah. that. Uh, offense, even though, again, there have been some pieces that have been swapped, uh, and we do love the addition of Bijan. It's not like they were hurting for a running back before, right? Like they still had a productive running game with Tyler Algier. So uh, going to go even there as well. Not necessarily a bad thing. Nope. Just means that they're going to keep doing more of what they did. Defense is really the difference maker for this team. Uh, they are as up as you can possibly imagine with the additions, both through free agency and the draft. Uh, you know, we love their defensive coaching staff, and now we love their defensive talent. If there is anything that is going to push this roster from um, relative mediocrity into being a darn fun football team to watch every Sunday and maybe flirting with a playoff berth, it's going to be the defense. Yeah, seven new starters brought in via free agency out of the 11-man defense. It's a lot. So big turnover. Some improvements, we hope a lot of improvements in the results that they get on the back end because you can say the roster's improved on paper all you want, but when it really pays off is, of course, playing those division games in, in what is always a, I'd say, strangely competitive division. A lot of times there's not necessarily a power. Either they're all good or they're all bad. Right. <laughs> but they beat each other up, and they always have. Um, you know, the saints Bucks games have been terrible over the years uh you know panthers and saints have taken chunks out of each other it's just it's one of those divisions where they they really do seem to thrash on each other and we'll see how all those defensive additions either pay off or don't again fairly quickly we should know i would say by mid-season whether or not the course they've set is something that's workable and they can keep pushing it and develop or whether it looks like they might need to make a more major course correction for ceiling and floor, this is the ceiling and wins and the floor and wins. Uh, this is about as narrow of a slice uh, for a team, I think, as I will give throughout this entire series. Again, we talked earlier about how, you know, they're not uh, bottom quartile. They're not top quartile. They're like, you know, just take a 15% slice out of the middle of the league. And that's where the Falcons are. Like it's the most mid of mid right now. Uh, which you can you can take that any way you want it, whether good or bad. My ceiling for them is nine. My floor for them is eight. So for me, either they're going to be nine and eight or they're going to be eight and nine. I don't see them being any worse than that. I don't see them being any better than that. Uh, yes, they do play against their own division, the NFC South. But like you just said, the NFC South will take chunks out of each other. Uh, I'm not I'm, I'm never going to predict them to go more than three and three in this division, regardless of the state of the other teams, because it's hard to do that in that division. Uh, they also play against the NFC North, and we like what the Lions have done. Uh, we think the Vikings are better. I think the Bears are better. Packers, depending on Jordan Love, they might be a tough out. They also play against the AFC South, significantly improve Houston, improve Colts, Jags are the Jags. Titans still got a tough defense, they play against the Jets. It's it's not like an insurmountable schedule, no. which is why I think they win at least eight games, but it's not an easy schedule, which is why I think they probably top out at nine. And it, it, it depends as much on the sort of strength of that schedule, which we're always estimating here, you know, early, early in the preseason, middle of the summer. 
But it really depends on how quickly Ritter develops. And if he doesn't develop, so my ceiling is the same at nine. If he does develop, I think nine is a very solid number for the amount of wins that they can stack together. And that would be a successful season for this team. If the wheels fall off and we see by Halloween or mid-year that he's struggling, it's going to take a while, they don't have a lot of things to turn to. They can flip Taylor Heineke in. I really don't think they want to do that. Taylor Heineke is a known known. Other than trying to save jobs, I'm not sure why they would do that. You really do want to give Ritter a full run to see what he's got. But if it starts off really rough, Certainly on offense, they don't have another way to turn. They would become a run-focused team, and in the NFL, that's not going to win them a lot of games. Defense might keep them in with all the new additions, but I could see the floor being five. If it starts to go south, this team could turn on Arthur Smith, knowing that he's not the future, and play very poorly down the stretch against what is a tough schedule. It's worst-case scenario, but I could see five being the floor. Either way, they ain't getting Caleb. Nope. You know, so the only way Kayla's playing the NFC South next year is if it's in a Tampa Bay uniform. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, Falcons fans are going to have to have fun with that. But yeah, uh, yeah they're, they are not a bad team. They're not a great team. They're in the middle. They're building. And they could potentially use this season as a stepping stone. But it really comes down to, you know, what all futures of teams come down to. How's the young quarterback looking? You can say the same about half the league right now. Does the young quarterback work out? If the answer is yes, they're going to be fine. If the answer is no, see you next year. Yeah, buck up, Falcons fans. Uh, this can be a very solid year for them. Like we said, we think our ceiling, their ceiling is nine. If Ritter develops very well, this is a great stepping stone season that they could build off of to be a divisional power next year. Um, if we've cranked you up or you're just a diehard Bijan fan, Desmond Ritter fan, uh, check out homage.com. They are our official clothing partner. They've got an NFL license. Uh, Brett's wearing their incredibly soft Texans hoodie today. It's a very nice hoodie. <laughs> Love their stuff. End up wearing it more often than not. If you need new gear because your old stuff has holes in it, check it out. Use the link in the description. Any purchase you make using that helps support this podcast and gives you some of the comfiest NFL gear you'll ever wear. We'll be back tomorrow talking New Orleans. Another um aggressively mid but still highly entertaining team that probably describes the entire nfc south i was gonna say that's a division description at this point yeah none of them are world beaters but boy they're fun to watch uh and then on friday of course we're doing our nfc south uh predictions where we pick a division winner out of this uh battle royale (laughs) down in the south they're all gonna they're all gonna be within two games of each other again uh as is tradition So we'll see you back here tomorrow, same time, same place, talking Saints. And until then, later. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.